Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Lesson number seven. Okay, our memory text today is 1 Chronicles 16.29, and it reads, Give the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What, what does it mean to give the Lord glory? Does it mean to stand up and shout, glory, glory? Is that what that means? What does it mean to give the Lord glory? His character. To reveal and promote his character. Okay, I love that. And then, what do we mean when we refer to his, quote, name? Or if we say, let's pray in the name of Jesus. Are we uh, talking about using the, the, the word Jesus? Or no, that doesn't count because that's Greek and he, they, they, they went by Hebrew or Aramaic and, and it should be Joshua or Yeshua. Uh, and that's the way we do it. So pray in the name of Yeshua. Is that what that means? That you end your prayers. And in Yeshua's name, amen. Is that what it means to pray in the name of Jesus? No. Or does, what does name mean in Bible context? Character. Jacob. The deceiver, once he was truly converted, wrestled that night, overcoming his fear and selfishness in trusting his Lord. His name was changed to Israel, which means one who with God overcomes. With God, he overcame. His name changed because his character changed. This is a quote out of the uh, book Desire of Ages. Page 668. But to pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Not to use a word at the end of the prayer, but to have a heart that loves what he loves, that that desires what he desires, that practices the principles he practices, manifests the attitude that he manifests. Does that mean that a person, until they reach that point in their life, shouldn't pray? Until they can pray in the character of God or Jesus? Shouldn't pray? How do you, how is it, what is, what do you understand prayer to be? Talking with God. So how do we get to the point that we have transformation of character to be like Jesus? But what if someone in their, um, let's say their actions, never reveal the type of character that you think God is, but yet you hear him pray. So, so, what does that mean? Good question. What does it mean? Can people use the name of Jesus and be Jesus' enemy? Yes. Can people pray in the name of Jesus and not actually represent Jesus? Absolutely. When I say in the name, use the language, but not the character. Right. Okay. So, there are going to be millions, and I have it in the notes here in just a moment, where they say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, get ye hence ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So they're using the language or the verbalizations of Jesus, but they don't have the character methods and principles of Jesus. We're going to come to that in a moment. So the name of the name of God or the name of Jesus is, is his character, and I want to see if we can differentiate character attributes from abilities. So I'm going to throw some abilities or character attributes at you. You tell me: is it an ability or is it an attribute of character? Perhaps you can you can ask you can answer that if you think it's both, and then explain how it's both. Omniscience, all knowing. Attribute. That's an ability. It doesn't tell us whether the person who knows everything is good or bad, does it? How about God is love? How about God is truth slash truthful? Character. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Ability. God is creator. Both. Ah, there you go. There's a, see, uh, I was setting Wendell up there, okay? That's a both. That's right. It is both in this case. It is uh, part of his character to create, but it also is an ability too, isn't it? Yes, that's a good one for both. God is patient. 
God exists outside of time and thus has foreknowledge. Ability. Uh, ability, yeah. God is forgiving. God is omnipresent. God is just. God is constant, never changing. It could be both, perhaps, yes, okay, but certainly it's part of his character that we are so happy for. Okay. In this conflict between Satan and God, what has the focus been about? Has Satan primarily argued against God's abilities? God is not powerful. He does not have knowledge. So it's not about having the abilities. It's not about, I'm actually stronger than God. I have more knowledge than God. I can be more places at once than God. I know the future better than God. Did he ever make these arguments about abilities? These are not the arguments. What were the arguments about? Trusting the one with all the power, which is an argument about character. He abuses the power, which is a question of character. So this is out of five testimony, 738. See what you think of this. Do you agree? Disagree. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself. Understand this methodology. Painting another innocent with your own evil. This is a method of the evil one. Okay, Presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Then, okay, lying about God. God is mean, he's severe, he's arbitrary, he's unforgiving. He will punish you. He will require this and that. And the I just, let's just, let's, this is the Dark Ages God, the God that will burn people at the stake if you don't do what he says. And it led to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment where people came along and said, oh, there is no God. We evolved from lower life forms. We've been freed from the oppression of this God. Okay? To put him out of their knowledge, continue with the quote, then he would obliterate the divine image in man and impress his own likeness upon the soul. He would imbue man with his own spirit and make them captives according to his will. We reject the knowledge of God and we embrace the methodologies of the world. Jesus said, my kingdom is found in this world. No. Satan is the prince of this world. So the methods of the world, the methods of the kingdoms of the world, which is make up rules, use power over, threat, coercion, imperialism, punishment. This is how the world operates. And... How many people are seeking to advance good through the methods of the world? Do you see this at work in the world today? Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Is it possible, if you understand, I won't mention which design law, but, but one's coming into operation in my question, so be thinking about design law. Can people who reject God and embrace godlessness be growing in godliness and come to accurately represent Jesus, be empowered by the Spirit of God to, to practice God's methods. Can that happen? Is that, is that, is that the outcome we're going to get? No. <laughs> or those who reject God and embrace the principles of the world, will they become more selfish, more fearful, more controlling of others? This is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become like what we admire and worship. It's unavoidable. Neurobiologically, we change. Characterologically, we change. It is not possible. No, they're rejecting God. There's a lot of people that 
promote God that are actually... Next point. Can people who believe in God but accept a false view of God, thus worship a God who is like Satan in character, become more like Jesus? Or will they become more like the enemy while they advance the fact that they're promoting God? So that's what you were saying. This is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. Should we expect, and just to kind of bring this up, should we expect that if we jump off buildings, we'll float? Should we be surprised that if we jump off buildings, we fall? This is design law. It's how reality works. Should we expect that if we reject God, we'll become more kind, patient, understanding, loving of our neighbors? Should we expect that? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Can we expect people who reject Jesus then to, to, what should we expect them to do when it comes to methods and principles they practice and how they run their businesses? Should we expect honesty and integrity from people who don't believe in God? Should we expect it? We may find it on occasion, but should you expect it? Should you expect it from people who accept false views of God? while they claim to be Christian, but they're not in heart. In other words, the unconverted people, people who still have the principles of the world as their primary operating system of their heart, should we expect integrity, honesty, loyalty, faithfulness, or not? No, in how they run their business. How about how they deal with conflict? Will they be peacemakers? Will they seek to forgive? Will they seek to give the cloak off their back? Will they seek to turn the other cheek? Or will they seek... To retaliate, to punish, to get justice through exacting vengeance and making the other pay, whether it's through suing them in court or getting the authorities to lock them up? Or how would we expect persons who don't believe in God to administer a school? And what would we expect them to teach our children? How would we expect such persons to run a government? And what methods would they employ on the citizenry? We expect them to advance more autonomy, more freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Would we expand or we expect people to become more controlling, to take liberties, to dominate? I want you to be able to discern in real life. Not just historically, as we look back at how the Jews crucified Christ, and we look back and go, oh yeah, look at how bad they were. How about today for us? Where is Satan working? Where is God's working? Can you tell the difference in their methods? You know, the most effective con men are the ones who say, I'm, are are they, I'll ask it, let me ask this question instead. Are the most effective con men, the one who are most likely to cheat you, get advantage of you, or are they the ones who show up and say this to you? I'm here to steal from you, molest your children, and get you addicted to drugs. That's what I'm here to do. No. Are they most effective? No. Or the one who says, I'm here, I'm here to make you wealthy, to care for your children, and to get you better health. And then, as you trust them, they steal from you, molest your kids, and get you addicted to drugs. Because you take what they've, what you trust, trust them. You trust them, so you take it. And then when you find yourself impoverished, unhealthy, the person who did this to you blames the one coming to you with solutions because they want to put you in detox and get you off the drugs, but that hurts. It's painful. And they say, see, they're trying to hurt you. They don't care for you. I'm trying to help you. This is what Satan does. He infects us with sin. He steals our joy, our happiness, our health. He injures our families, and then he blames God or godly people or God's methods as being the problem. Do you see this happening in various leaders or groups operating publicly today in our society? Can you see it? I can see it as clear as night and day. Claiming they're here to help you while they or their followers are actually injuring, inciting problems. And then they turn around and claim they're here to fix the problems that they're causing. When we look at the character of Jesus, what do we learn about God? 
because we're, we're here to bring offerings. It says in our memory text, to bring offerings when we come to the Lord. What do you understand that mean when you read that and bring offerings to the Lord? What, what did you hear? Offering of self. Oh, I love that. Remember, it says we're to um, bring, give him glory and honor his name and bring him offerings. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, methods of the world, imperialism, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the difference between the world. world is interested in rules to enforce or coerce behavior. It's all about behavior. God is concerned with renewing your mind, transforming your heart. Okay? And then when your mind is renewed, the text goes on to say, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You won't know what God's will is if your mind isn't renewed. You'll actually read the Bible and go to church and study these things through the lens of how the world operates. If your mind's not renewed, and that's why the things of the Lord are foolishness to those in the world. It makes no sense to them. So if you're operating on the survival of the fittest principle, it makes no sense that the more you give, the more you receive. No. The more you hoard, the more you get. The more you put in your savings, the more you take from people, the more you get. It is foolish to think that if you give away, you get more. That doesn't make sense at all. They don't understand the law of love. They also don't understand the law of liberty. And you can, I'm telling you folks right now, look around the world. You read my book, Could It Be This Simple? Written 2000, uh, published in 2007, 13 years ago. So this is not something I just came up with. I just want to say that. I'm not bringing it up for the context of wouldn't we live. This is just reality, law of liberty. You violate liberty in a relationship, threaten people, take their freedoms from them, try to lock them down. Love is damaged. Try it on your spouse. You can't go out of the house. You can't talk to your friends. You can't do anything without my permission. They won't love you more. Love will be damaged. A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. You want your freedom back. Love only grows atmosphere of freedom. And then if you stay under that control long enough, you lose your individuality and you become a shadow person, a person who actually surrenders and thinks through the lens of the person that's been controlling you. And you will eventually come to defend that person. Uh, you will make excuses. It wasn't his fault. This is what little children in abusive homes do. They defend the parent. This is what spouses of abused husbands do. They defend the abusing spouse. This is a Stockholm syndrome where the hostages taken defend their hostage takers. Very predictable. And so I'm going to tell you that you can look around and you're going to see rebellion from lockdowns and control. And that rebellion is a godly design because it's against God's design to take liberty from people. You are given by God individuality, your own identity, your own ability. So the Bible principles, as you read in various places, Romans 14, every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. We present truth in love. We leave people free. We don't coerce. We don't try to lock down. We don't control. We persuade with evidence. That's God's method. Understanding the rebellion in heaven when Lucifer rebelled and started lying about God and starting to do evil. What method did God use? God had the power to put everybody on a lockdown. Did he do it? Did he, he had the power to stop Satan from speaking bad things. He could have just reached inside of Satan's mind and shut off his ability to speak. We see that happening with uh, John the Baptist's dad. Right? He could have just shut him down. Did he do it? Did he stop him? What method did he use? Freedom. If you take freedom, you destroy love and or, and individuality for those who surrender to it. Who do you think wants to destroy love in this society and individuality? Methods like that are not from God. So we're supposed to offer ourselves in worship, spiritual worship. Hosea 6.6 6 says, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. What does God want? He wants our love. 
We're to bring God an offering, but the offering we bring is ourselves. We offer ourselves to him in humble submission. And when we offer ourselves to him, what does he do? He fixes us. He restores us. He heals us. He sets us free from fear, from guilt, from shame. He writes his law in our hearts and minds. We get new hearts and right spirits. We are empowered. We're enabled. We get discernment. We get wisdom. He sets us free to ultimately have the fruits of the Spirit. And the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Surrendering to God, we don't become puppets that he controls. That would destroy love. It would destroy individuality. He fixes us, heals us, so that we have, in the highest sense of freedom, liberty to act. But our actions now are in accordance with him because we love his methods. We love the way he does things, and we identify with him. Now, this Bible memory verse that we've just gone over, does it remind you of any other verse? Such as the three angels' messages. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. In other words, at this time in human history, a message is to go forward to be in awe of this amazing creator and give him glory by revealing his character in our character. For the hour has come in human history for people to make a right judgment about God. The hour of his judgment has come. Not the hour of his judicial magistrate where he sits and reviews records and decides things. It's the hour in human history where we are deciding whether God is like this dark ages lie or the message we have is to enlighten the world that God isn't like that so people can make a right judgment and reject the imperial dictator and embrace the creator and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. The designer. That's our message. And thus we turn to, and then this has something to do with worshiping him and the beauty of holiness. Well, let's turn to Wednesday's lesson. And in Wednesday's lesson, right in the middle of the lesson, it says, the beauty of holiness, taking that phrase out of our memory verse, what might that mean? What might that mean? Well, let's look at the third and fourth paragraphs. For starters, think about how ugly, damaging, how degrading sin is. Also, it's hard for us now to imagine just how evil, terrible, and degrading the worship practices of the nations around Israel were, practices that included, all of all things, child sacrifice. And no question, these things reflected what the people who practiced them were like. In contrast, ancient Israel was to be a holy nation, separated from the evil customs around them. They were to be holy in their hearts and minds. This is what gave their worship meaning and beauty before the Lord. Again and again, the Old Testament prophets railed against people who worshipped the Lord while engaging in corruption and while their hearts were far from him. I think the lesson is definitely pointing us in the right direction here. Sin damages, distorts, corrupts, injures, infects, perverts, abuses, exploits, harms, destroys, and kills. Sin is ugly. In fact, I will say this, all, that's an, that's an absolutist statement, all ugliness is a result of sin. Not all ugliness is sin. All ugliness is a result of sin. For instance, any disease, defect, illness, deformity, such as blindness, paralysis, deafness, lesions, mental impairments, are a result of sin. But these things in themselves are not sin. Jesus instructed his disciples that the man born blind, they asked him who sinned, him or his parents. Jesus said, neither. But blindness wouldn't exist in the world if sin didn't exist in the world. It's a result of sin, but it's not sin to be blind. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that Romans 8 that all nature groans under the weight of sin. So sinfulness, the condition of being in sin is a state of being out of harmony with God and his design. And that state of being out of harmony with him his design injures and harms. And thus, the greater the distance from God, from his perfection, from his holiness, the greater the deformity, the injury, and the damage. Does that make sense? 
In other words, the greater we separate ourselves from God, the greater the ugliness. And such ugliness is both physical and characterological. So this is from the book, The Desire of Ages. And it's talking about the two demoniacs that confronted Jesus, starting on page 337. It says, from some hiding place among the tombs, two madmen rushed upon them as if to tear them to pieces. Hanging about these men were parts of chains uh, which they had broken in escaping from confinement. Their flesh was torn and bleeding where they had cut themselves with sharp stones. Their eyes glared out from their long and matted hair. The very likeness of humanity seemed to have been blotted out by the demons that possessed them, and they looked more like wild beasts than like men. The disciples and their companions fled in terror. But presently, they noticed that Jesus was not with them, and they turned back to look for him. He was standing where they had left him. He who had stilled the tempest, who had before met Satan and conquered him, did not flee before these demons. When the men gnashing their teeth and foaming at the mouth approached him, Jesus raised a hand, which had beckoned the waves to rest, and the men could come no nearer. They stood raging, but helpless before him. With authority, he bade the unclean spirits to come out of them. A marvelous change had come over the demoniacs. Light had shone into their minds. Their eyes beamed with intelligence. The countenance so long deformed into the image of Satan became suddenly mild. The bloodstained hands were quiet. And with glad voices, the men praised God for their deliverance. The encounter with the demoniacs of Gergesa had a lesson for the disciples. It showed the depths of degradation to which Satan is seeking to drag the whole human race and the mission of Christ to set men free from his power. Those wretched beings dwelling in the place of graves, possessed by demons, in bondage to uncontrolled passions and loathsome lusts represent what humanity would become if given up to satanic jurisdiction. Satan's influence is constantly exerted upon men to distract the senses, control the mind for evil, and incite to violence and crime. Do we see this? I'm pausing in the middle. We'll come back to the quote. Do we see this happening in society today? When you see rioters looting stores, assaulting people in the street, dragging people out of their cars, yelling, shouting down voices of, that disagree with them. When you see liberty attacked, when you see freedom of speech oppressed, when you see big tech censoring and promoting falsehoods, do you see the enemy of God at work destroying the image of God in people and inciting division and conflict? Do you see it? The devil, the Bible says at this time in human history, he's like a roaring lion. And what, what does a lion's roar do? It incites what? Fear. fear. Do you see the messages of fear? Fear, fear, fear. Just screaming at people through the media today. Make you afraid. This is the roar of the enemy. Keep going with the quote. He weakens the body. That's the devil. He weakens the body, darkens the intellect, and debases the soul. Whenever men reject the Savior's invitation, they are yielding themselves to Satan. Multitudes in, in every department of life, in the home, in business, and even in the church, could we also say in politics as well? In every department of life, and in the church, are doing this today. In the church? That's what this, this author says. It is because of this that violence and crime have overspread the earth. And moral darkness, like the pall of death, enshrouds the habitations of men. Moral darkness. Not being able to tell what's right from what's wrong. The mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5.14. But moral darkness, we can't tell what's right and wrong. Now, that's my truth. Now, that might be your truth, but, but this is my truth. No ability to tell. Everybody has their own version. Moral darkness. Moral darkness like a pall of death and shrouds the habitations of men. Through his specious temptations, Satan leads men to worse and worse evils till utter depravity and ruin are the result. The only safeguard against his power 
is found in the presence of Jesus. Do you believe or not believe that? Or are there groups today who are actively seeking to eliminate Jesus from our society? Do you find Jesus freely preached in communist countries? Or, in fact, has there historically been penalties? Churches shut down, people in prison for preaching Jesus. Would we expect that if movements moved us toward the, the communist types of thinking and politicking and governing that we'll get more Jesus in society or less Jesus? Interesting. But Jesus is the only safeguard against the corruption of Satan. And we want to eliminate Jesus in the gospel from society? Are there movements actively seeking to seduce people to go that direction? Under the guise of, well, we love everyone. We want everyone to have a home, clothing, food, health care, education. We want to supply for you. We want to give you a better life. Do you hear the con man? Can you tell the difference between words and deeds? Do you understand how reality functions? Do you understand and can you discern principles? Why do communist leaders throughout all history, go to figure history, always get rid of Christianity? They always get rid of every hundred percent of the time they get rid of Christianity. Why? Because the principles of God are freedom, liberty, and truth. Openness. Satan's principles are coercion, deceit, domination, control, and communism cannot exist where people love God and promote the methods of Jesus. It can't exist there. Do you see the forces of darkness at work in America today seeking to lead people down paths that will form the image to the beast? which is coercion and control of conscience and eliminating of the principles of Christ from the hearts of men. Continuing on with the quote. Before men and angels, Satan has been revealed as man's enemy and destroyer. Christ is man's friend and deliverer. His spirit will develop in man all that will ennoble the character and dignify the nature. If it will build up for the glory of God in body and soul and spirit. That's what Christ will do. Do we recognize the true beauty is found only in holiness? And holiness is the restoration of God's design. That's what holiness is. The restoration of God's design. Living in harmony with how God built reality to operate. Restoring God's design laws into your heart and mind. What's the new covenant? I will write my laws in your heart and mind. My methods of doing business, truth, love, liberty. And as we practice God's methods, this is true beauty. This is true freedom. Have you understood that the Bible actually calls God's law the law of liberty? You understand the only law that gives you freedom is design law. Human law never gives you more freedom. It restricts it. Human laws restrict liberty. God's law gives you liberty because God's law frees you from all of the consequences of the damage that happens to us when we're out of harmony from it. So think about it this way. Law of health. You smoke two packs a day. And you get more and more physiological benefits and health. You smoke two packs a day, eat Big Mac and fries and milkshakes every day. Do you get more liberty or do you get less liberty? Do you become less capable of climbing stairs? You get obese, less capable of bending over. You get more. And as you harmonize with the laws of health and you lose weight and you have more better lung and pulmonary cardiac function, do you get more freedom and liberty? Okay? God's laws free you how about the law of love and through god you experience his grace and forgiveness and you now no longer suffer under guilt and shame have have you experienced freedom and those who don't experience god's grace they continue to operate under guilt and shame and and what what is their life like they're enslaved with fear fear of rejection fear of embarrassment fear of humiliation fear of being found out They're enslaved, and thus they're manipulated 
by their own feelings or by other people. True beauty is found in holiness, and holiness is harmony with God's design. Ancient Israel was supposed to be separate. We just read that in the, in the uh, lesson. Separate from the evil and sinfulness in the world. But what happened? Did they succeed in achieving that separation of holiness? Or did they become elitist and socially separate, but they didn't separate from the sin in the world? They accepted the lie that God's laws imposed. It's a system of rules. The lie, and this lie led them to act as all worldly systems function and focus on behavior, on deeds, rather than on character. And thus Israel separated themselves from the world by dress, religious ritual, diet, day of worship, and list of doctrines. This is what they did. We're separate from the world because we have our unique dress, religious rituals, diet, day of worship, and doctrines. That's how we're separate. But because they did not separate from the world in understanding of God's law, his design, his character, his methods, they did not experience a change of heart, character from the world, and thus they practiced the methods of imperialism in force and coercion. And when Jesus came, they dressed right, they ate right, they went to church on the right day, they had the right list of doctrines, but they still rejected Christ and killed him. They were bigoted, prejudicial, arrogant, narcissistic, prideful, hard-hearted, conceited, exploited those around them, ignored the plight of the less fortunate, even among Israel, and killed their creator. But they had the right day of worship. They dressed right. Um, they had the right list of doctrines. They had the right day, uh, day of worship, the right diet, and the right uh, dress. You see what I'm saying here? Accepting the lie that God's law functions like human law resulted in the Jews becoming just as evil as the pagans around them but with the right dress, diet, day of worship, and doctrines. Are we doing the same thing today? Are we at risk of doing the same thing today? Uh, Second paragraph reads, uh, The place of worship was the tabernacle where God had dwelt with ancient Israel and where the plan of salvation had been revealed to them. Central then to worship and to worship education must be Jesus and the plan of salvation all of which was foreshadowed in the tabernacle service. Whatever else God has done for us that deserves praise and worship, it all means nothing without the hope of eternal life offered by his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross. Do we agree that central to worship must be Jesus and the plan of salvation? Do we agree? Yet, um, now the, the text I referenced earlier what do we do with Matthew seven twenty one through 23, where it says, Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. If we were to find people that fit this definition from Jesus, he's, he's saying there will be people just like this. If we find people who fall into this group, and we say to them that... Central to worship is Jesus and the plan of salvation. What would they say? Amen. Ah, so does putting Jesus and then and, and the plan of salvation central to worship actually separate us from those who actually get rejected by Jesus? Hmm. That, that, she said she never knew me. Mm-hmm. Yes, but but yes, they didn't know Jesus. But who did they think they know? But who did they put? Who did they claim they were putting at the center of their worship? Yeah, oh boy. Mm, are you uncomfortable yet? There's something more than just saying that Jesus is the center of salvation. There's something more than saying I accept Jesus as my savior. There's something more than just saying Jesus is my substitute and paid my penalty of sin. In other words, you can claim all that and still be an enemy of Jesus. How is that possible? My view, by accepting the false view of the character of God and the Father, uh, of Jesus and the Father. And what is the root that is underpinning all of the false views, all of them, every one of the false views that has infected Christianity and is the prime, central view of God taught across all denominations is that God's law functions like human law. God makes up rules like we do. And when you make up rules, justice requires that the, the ruling authority use his power to punish the rule breaker. 
rather than God as creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality operate. And when you deviate from them, they damage and injure us. And it requires the lawgiver, the creator, to reach out and heal and fix the damage in those who are out of harmony and bring us back into harmony to heal or reconcile us. Completely different pictures. The false system of Christianity is built all on the penal legal model or lie that God's law works like human law, and therefore justice requires the infliction of punishment. And God is the ultimate punisher. And thus death comes from God. And thus Satan can say for all those, and this is why he undermines belief and trust in God. And all the doctrines that come along that teach us we have to be hidden or protected from God, so we need Jesus as a mediator to talk to God on our behalf or offer him a sacrifice. This is all paganism. It's a big distortion of reality. And Satan can say things like, hey, if God just got some anger management classes and didn't use his power to kill us, we could live eternally in sin because sin doesn't harm, God harms you for it. That's Satan's view. It's a big lie. It's not reality. And this is why God is waiting. He's waiting for a people to come back to the knowledge of God, to judge him rightly, and to give the world a message that God is not like this pagan dictator that came out of Rome. C.S. Lewis, in his book, last book of the Narnia series, describes a Cal Marine, a Cal Ormine, a soldier named Emeth, and his encounter with Aslan the Lion. Emeth, Lion, Emeth was a worshiper of Tash his entire life. And he was terrified when he came into Aslan's presence. And this is the encounter from the book. I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of death, for the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. But Aslan's response, son, thou art welcome. But I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. He answered, child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. I questioned the glorious one. Lord, is it, is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled and said, it is false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me. And none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not. And it is I who, re who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed accepted. Emmeth questioned once more, Lord, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, Unless thy desire had been, had been uh, for me, thou should not have sought so long and so truly. For all find what they truly seek. Isn't that well said? See, the level four legal penal people can't allow for this. At level four, this is the level of a lawyer. You have to have the right word said. And so they will, you will hear arguments in Christianity. Were you baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost? If they didn't say the right words when they baptize you, it doesn't count. It's all, you have to have the right doctrinal definition. You have to accept the right, uh, the right concepts or ideas. You're saved by your cognitive acknowledgement of certain belief systems. It's all penal legal. No, no. It's all about your heart attitude, the character. That's what it's about. Um, in Paul's writing, he talks about they went somewhere and they had been baptized, but they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and so they got rebaptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't understand. I, I, I had to go back and read that text a little closely. And so, what do we think that means? In my view, it's simply very straightforward. They came to believe in Jesus, but they hadn't yet accepted the working of the Holy Spirit in their life to transform them. And so in the world, so you can believe in Jesus, the idea, the concept, and love what he stands for, but you haven't opened your heart for the Holy Spirit to transform you. And so they were identifying with Christ, they loved what he stood for, but yet they still hadn't immersed themselves completely, surrendered their hearts in the Holy Spirit. So that rebaptism was a symbolic way of saying, I've really died to the old life now, and I've been raised to a new life with the indwelling Spirit transforming me. That's how I understand that. So what is, what is the root? The root, in my view, is this idea of distortion of law. It strikes people. Now, with that in mind, the two versions of law 
imposed rules like humans make up, law of gravity, law of physics, law of love, law of liberty, law of worship, law of exertion, all these design laws, how reality works. Consider this historic quote. I just came across it actually this morning. Um, and it's at a review and Herald, August 13, 1895. Any measure that is of such a nature as to oppress the poor and afflicted, bring neglect upon the uh, bring neglect upon the widow and orphan, is leading us away from the example given us in the life of Christ and misrepresenting the principles of God's law. What law is being described here? Is it a list of rules or is it the principle of love? Any measure that is of such a nature to oppress the poor and afflicted, bring neglect upon the widow and the orphan, is leading us away from the example giving us in Christ and misrepresenting the principles of God's law. What kind of law is this? Well, there's a rule and you're supposed to do this. Is that the kind of law? Or is it the law of love? In an action, right? And is love just an emotion? Or is it a principle of giving what's in the best interest of the other party? So if grandma, who's 85, has bad arthritis and her joints hurt when she walks and you hate to see it because she can tell she's in pain, it just tears your heart up, do you love her by giving her a motorized wheelchair and she stops walking? Or have you hurt her? You've hurt her, guys. You've accelerated her decline. How about you have a child? Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You have a toddler, and your toddler is learning to walk, and as they learn to walk, they stumble, and as they stumble, they, they fall, and they scrape their chin on the ground, on the dirt, and they, and they bleed, and they cry. And, of course, as a loving parent, your heart goes out to that child, and you pick them up, and you clean the wound, and you comfort them. But do you think to yourself, oh, I just can't stand to see my child hurt like this. I will never set them down again. I'll carry them so they never stumble and fall. And you never put them down again. Have you? Is that an act of love to the child? Or does that injure the child? How many parents or certain, shall we say, philosophies in society see people who've stumbled and fallen in life or, or had a hard time, they're scraped, they're bruised, they're battered, and instead of, of healing the wounds, comforting, encouraging, and then putting them on their feet to stumble and fall again. Because when you put that toddler down, you know they're going to stumble and fall again until they finally learn to walk. How many in late adolescence stumble and fall in some bad decision-making? And we need to comfort them, and we need to help them, and we need to help heal their heart wounds, and we, need, and we need to share with them a better way. But ultimately, don't we have to set them back down to stand on their own two feet or stumble and fall again? Don't we? How many philosophies don't want to do this for people? Because, but they're hurting. It's painful. They're crying. And we infantilize. This is not love, folks. This is sentimentalism. This is emotionalism. Or it's over-empathy, over-identifying. And this is why doctors are never supposed to treat their own family members. Because they over-empathize and they can't make the call that will cause the pain that is necessary to heal the wound to get them well. So they actually often give treatments that make it worse. If we don't put them back down... They, they don't exercise. This is law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. So we must stress people. When you go to the gymnasium and you exercise with weights, you understand the weights are stressing your muscles. And if you exercise with, let's just say you start with a five-pound weight, and that's the appropriate weight to start with. But after two weeks with five pounds and you're working regularly, what's going to happen? Is that five pounds going to be sufficient to help you continue to gain strength? Or you have to add weight. So, so the, the trainer comes along and they add two more pounds. You're at seven pounds. And two weeks later, you're at 10 pounds. And two weeks later, you're now at 15 pounds. Do you look at the trainer and go, what is wrong with you? You keep adding more weight to me. Why do you keep stressing me? I just got here. How many people do this with the stressors of life? You, have you prayed, God, give me more faith? How do you think you're going to get more faith? You must be stressed in circumstances which require you to exercise your trust or faith in God. And as you traverse those stressors and experience increasing faith and deliverance, guess what happens? You are presented with more opportunities to exercise your faith. How many people don't understand this when dealing with people that have come from different backgrounds than us and they don't want to put a stressor on them? Oh, oh, so think about this again. I give the example of a coach on a football team. 
And the coach says to the players on the team, I understand some of you have come from single-parent homes and some of you have come from poverty homes and some of you were abused as children. You've had a horrible background. You haven't had the same advantages of the two-parent wealthy kid homes. Therefore, you guys that come from those bad backgrounds, you don't have to come to practice. You don't have to lift weights. You don't have to study the playbook. You don't have to actually just show up for game day. How's that going to work? Do you understand there's philosophies in our society that are teaching people this outside of physical exercise when it comes to actually managing and developing skills of life? We don't expect you to exercise. You've had a hard life. It doesn't matter the hard life. Wherever your starting point is, if you want to get stronger, you've got to exercise. You've got to use your abilities or you're not going to grow. You're going to get worse. Continue on with the quote. Representative men connected with the work and call... Uh, connected with the work and cause of God will bring a heavy retribution upon themselves if they mislead the people of God by their spirit and action and misrepresent the principles of the law of Jehovah. What does this mean? What law do you think is being talked about here? The list of rules, the do's and the don'ts? Or we're talking about how we treat those who come from impoverished backgrounds. How we help the less fortunate. It's the law of love. But a heavy retribution. What do you understand that to mean? What happens in the character, heart, mind of a person who walks by a Samaritan, uh, the, 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 the beaten man that the Samaritan helped? What happens when you see someone who's been beaten along the side of the road and you just turn your nose and leave them? And if you feel guilt and you don't resolve it by repentance and helping others, then what happens to your heart? It hardens. And then what happens when you come into the, into the presence of infinite truth and you have full awareness of your own condition and what you've done to others? There is a retribution. It's the retribution of unremedied sin in the heart. Continuing on. If they weave into the work that which springs from their own natural temperament, natural temperament, survival of the fittest, me first, fear, defending self, if they weave into the work what springs from their own natural temperament and mar the cause by disorders of their own natural disposition, they will cause to appear in the work of God the attributes of the fallen foe and his counter and confederate angels rather than the attributes of Jesus Christ. Oh, I can tell you, if you have discernment, just look around. You can see this in people claiming they're here to help while they're actually inflicting harm and making the problems worse. You know, I heard just, I won't, I won't mention any names, but I heard a very popular, the popular and powerful and public figure in the last week on the news talking about how we feed people, we feed people, we feed people. Remember the old Indian proverb, give a man a fish and feed him for a day? Teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. Which action is the greater act of love? In fact, giving handouts to those, now notice my caveat, that are capable of becoming independent. And thereby, we give handouts instead. We lead to their disuse of their abilities causing them to become less confident in themselves, less capable, less developed, thus more dependent upon the source of sustenance, is this an act of love or is it an act of injury? This is the corruption I see in our society all over the place. People need discernment on how reality works. They're there claiming I'm here to help while they're causing the very problem that they say they're here to remedy, and then anyone who comes along and says, First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, Paul, the New Testament, those who do not work should not eat. Paul, you are cruel. You're unkind. You have no love. You're mean-spirited. Cancel him, she said. No, Paul understands reality. These are capable people. These are people who could do but choose not to do. And thus it's damaging to their character. You understand it's damaging to the integrity and character development of a person who is capable not to engage their abilities to advance themselves and apply themselves, to take from others rather than give to others. Law of love is giving. We develop and grow more Christ-like when we give to others, but we're taking when we have the ability instead to be autonomous and give 
It is the exact opposite of God's design for our development. It's destructive. And there are entire parties that promote this distortion of reality. We are not talking about the widow. We're not talking about the orphan. We're not talking about the truly disabled. Continue out the quote. The fashion of the work coming forth from every soul that is born of God has been clearly pictured before us. He who is truly a child of God will exercise the transforming power of grace upon mind and heart, and his character will develop after the divine similitude. Law of worship, law of exertion, law of love in operation. We are being transformed by applying the methods of God. The description of the work of Christ will be the description of the work of everyone who is born of God, who walks not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The apostle says, ye are laborers together with God, representing the holy law of God to heaven, to worlds unfallen, and the fallen world. Representing the law of God is its true in its true character arouses the enmity of Satan. You see, when you preach what we're preaching, when you teach what we're teaching, when you apply to your life these principles, it, Satan get agitated. He doesn't care if you're a penal legal theologian who will ultimately crucify Christ and get him off the cross so you can go home and keep the Sabbath and keep the law. He doesn't care about that type of law keeping. In fact, he wants you to keep that type of law. What he hates is for people to be enlightened about the true picture of God's design law and to begin living out the principles of love and liberty, to be able to uh, create an atmosphere of openness. He loves the principles that are coming into our society right now that are coercing people, that are shouting people down, that are censoring people, that are intimidating people, that are using violence to coerce. He loves these principles. He doesn't want open dialogue and discussion. He has no truth. Those aren't the principles of love that he practices. And then those who love God with all their heart will love the law of his kingdom. They will not only profess to be guided by its principles, but they will actually live it out in their lives. Even in a world that is no more favorable to the development of Christian principles than the inhabitants of the world before the flood, Evil and evil continually. A similar condition of society exists in our world today. And if those who claim to be God's commandment-keeping people do not put in practice the principles of the law which Christ came to our world to vindicate, pronouncing it holy, just, and good, they misrepresent the character and mission of the professed master. They mislead men in regard to the requirements of the law and will be stumbling blocks in the way of sinners. This is what happens with penal legal religion. This is why in the, in the Christian church, there's no difference in the Christian home than the non-Christian home. And it's pornography use, spouse abuse rates, child abuse rates, and addiction because they have the wrong law that has no power and it doesn't transform and they end up misrepresenting the actual kingdom of God as being no different than the world. The Lord of hosts has warned us that we shall take heed not to misrepresent the law of his government by any unmerciful action on our part toward our fellow men. The law of God is to be lived out. Thus, in the character of God's people, a living testimony will be born that will contradict the fallacy of Satan, who has declared that the law of Jehovah is arbitrary and holds its subject under cruel bondage. We are to live it out. And how we treat people. And so another trap of the devil within the Christian church is taking, yes, we need to love the unfortunate. We need to love the poor people. We need to love them. And so how do we then love them? Well, the Christian way is interpersonally. We find people in our community that we minister to. We organize in the church ministry groups that go out and help in their community. We, we do all types of projects in our community to feed soup kitchens and all kinds of things, educational, schools, so forth. But instead... Yes, take that compassion and let's marry ourselves to the state. And let's use the methods of the state to coerce everybody through taxation and threats of punishment to operate on our moral principles and to practice what we think is right for them to practice. And that's what you see happening. And thus God's methods are replaced with the methods of this world. And we have more division and more hostility in society. Well, there is a whole bunch more in our lesson we're not going to get to. I encourage you to get the notes. There was an entire day that we were going to go into what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth. 
But we're not going to get to that. That's in Tuesday's lesson. There's a whole long list of what does spirit mean and, and all the different ways it's used in the New Testament and what does it mean for us today to worship God in spirit and truth. So check out the notes. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of your kingdom, for the methods in which you've employed, how you've designed and constructed and created your reality to operate. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We were born with hearts filled with fear and insecurity that led us to act in self-protective ways. But praise be to God that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to be our Messiah, to be our Savior, to be our remedy, to the solution, to, to, to bring truth, to set us free from lies and give us a new heart and right spirit. We ask that your spirit will take the victories of Christ, reproduce it in us, and enable us to be discerning and wise and effective to take this final message of mercy, to lighten the world, Lord, open avenues of communication, bring resources and people to the vineyard and the field that we can uh, get this message out, get it around the world, lighten the world, and see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.